Welcome to Full and Frank, a series of podcasts from Actress Exchange, spanning the worlds of finance, politics, sport, and the media. So welcome to this podcast on behalf of Aquas Exchange. Uh, I'm Michael Wilson and I'm joined by my good friend David Buick and we are both. Good morning, David, by the way. Good day to you, kind sir. Good day. Um, now we're delighted to be joined by Jonathan Davey, who's uh, um, a leading figure from the City of London, been a leading figure for, well, 50 years or so, um, always either at the coalface, but similarly um, shares and seats quite comfortably with leading bankers and other big financial figures throughout his lifetime. Welcome, Jonathan. Um, let, let, me, let me start this off. I know David's got lots of detailed career questions to ask you, but what did, what did you want to do when, when you were little, if I can put it like that? Well, I think like most little people at the time, I probably wanted to drive a train, I think was oh. probably the answer to that. <laughs> I don't think my thinking was particularly original at the time. It was a question of whether my train was bigger than most of my friends or not. <laughs> So I, I fulfilled a, a, a lifetime's ambition about sitting, sitting in the driver's seat of the Flying Scotsman. I, I guess you with, you, you, with your context, could, could buy one now, couldn't you, more or less? I wish I could. No, I wish I could. No, I haven't been that successful, unfortunately. <laughs> I've had a very happy and long career, which I've enjoyed immensely, but it hasn't brought fantastic wealth, but I've had a wonderful life, and it's given me a comfortable life, and I'm very grateful for that, and I've kept my health. You, you, you did a lot of jobs, didn't you, straight after university before you actually, um, you know, got into the city, as it were? Well, I never, re I didn't actually go to university. My father wouldn't allow me to go to university. But I went to a sort of university in Switzerland for nine months and then um, uh, went off and had a gap year, uh, as it's now known, um, in America, which um, I thoroughly enjoyed. And I met, in those days, you could get a green card very easily, unlike now from the embassy, and go off and work over there. And my father gave me uh, a ticket across the Atlantic on a boat and a $99.99 day bus ticket. And off I went and I took jobs as I travel around America, all sorts of things, clearing up after floods, uh, selling newspapers in Oregon and all sorts of things. And in fact, one of the other things, I met some Brits and we used to drive antique Rolls Royces from New York to California and sell them to people like Jack Lemon and Gypsy Rose Lee. Um, so it was always quite fun. And if you got into a town in the Midwest in America in the 1964-5 and said you knew the Beatles and you were there in a 1930 Rolls Royce, you didn't get out for a week. <laughs> that, that, that aside, I'm imagining, though, that, that also because we're going to I know we're going to talk about this later on, but you have you do actually get right down to people as well as just, you know, uh, just sit, sit with the boardroom, as it were. Was it, did you feel that was good training, you know, to meet people, meet people? particularly foreigners, as we'd, as we'd call them? Well, I think I learned quite a lot because I, I feel that the biggest mistake in my life I've made over my life was completely misunderstanding uh, um, uh, personal PR. You know, I mean, I think I was, as young, I was far too arrogant. Um, and I think I had no grounds or basis for my arrogance whatsoever. And uh, when I look back on that, I wish I'd learned more about that when I was younger. But of course, when you travel everywhere, you know, you've got to get on with people, haven't you? I mean, it's absolutely essential. You've got to try and meet them halfway. I mean, that's what you've been doing all your life, Michael, very successfully. Of all the things that I've done in my life, I think my six months as a busboy working at the Bam Springs Hotel yeah. in Alberta shines yeah. out. Yeah, exactly. Uh, because I lost some, you know, serious amount of money playing cards and it was a real growing up. Period. Yeah. Loved it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
to tell us a little bit about Webdelac. I mean, for those people who don't have a city initiation, there were two serious jobbers, Webs yes. and Ackroyds. Yeah. And they tended to dominate both the bond market and the equities market. There were other very good people, yeah. but they were dominant. And you, at the time, I think when you joined there, the senior partner was a gentleman called Dick Wilkins, yes. I think, who was a very colourful character. Yes. Tell us a little bit about the culture of the of the of the job. At the top, well, it was a, it was it was a very freewheeling world in those days compared with now, and of course, it was like the city, which in those days was basically run by the Bank of England. It was a club, and if the bank governor didn't like you, then you left the club. You didn't have any um, alternative to go to a lawyer and seek him out and everything else. You 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 had there were standards of behaviour that everyone had to keep up, and of course, the stock exchange dictum may impact on my words, my bond reflected part of that. And uh, Dick Wilkins was certainly a larger-than-life character who spent money like water, uh, lived in the Savoy, uh, had a powerboat called Tramontana, won the Daily Express powerboat race once, and uh, was, was, was a spectacular character. And uh, to, to show how things have changed, when I joined as a partner in Wedder, I finally became a partner, and I really had no money, and I just bought a house. And... Um, uh, Dick said, I, well, all uh, gent partners are supposed to put up 25,000 pounds. <laughs> so I said, well, Dick, I haven't got 25,000 pence, sir. He said, well, we'll sort that out later, Jonathan. I've got to deal with other matters at the moment. Anyway, in the end, I managed to get a loan. And six months later, the firm was making no money at all. I had my drawings. Everything was fine. But I worked out technically. I was completely insolvent. And so I, I got an audience with Dick. And he's uh, after about a couple of weeks with Dick Wilkins. And he said, well, what, why are you here? So I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to tell you, sir, that I'm insolvent. So I said, what do you mean you're insolvent? Have you been gambling? So I said, no, sir. I ran him through the sums, which is basically I was drawing money out. The firm was losing money. I had debt. Ergo, I'm insolvent. He said, don't be stupid. He said, on that basis, we're all insolvent. He said, get out and make some money. <laughs> I mean, that was the sort of person he, he was. I mean, he was, he was phenomenal. Pushing on from, from there, I think... Um... You talked about how important it was for uh, guilt-edged jobbers to be close to the regulators, so yeah. as in those days it was the Bank of England. Yeah. And you must have either come across or uh, know about a number of what I would describe as colourful characters. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's Robin Lee Pemberton yeah. or, you know, more recently, um, Mervyn King and a great favourite of mine who I thought was absolutely stunning was... Uh, Mr. George, I thought Eddie George yeah. was a stunning yeah. character, but I'll tell you why, because he'd done it yeah. right from the grassroots level. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the, the differential between those, and then I'd ask you a little bit more about some of the other central bankers, which obviously brought influence to bear through a number of crises. <laughs> well, I think that the central banking role really changed, didn't it, when, when, in, in the UK when Gordon Brown brought in his changes. And Eddie George was, as, as you were alluding to, uh, David, absolutely the right man for the moment, because it was much more about markets, what was happening in markets, the understanding of markets, the liquidity of markets, and all these things. And Eddie took that very seriously and understood that extremely well. So it, he was really the man for the moment there, due to his background that you talked about. I think that um, now, of course, what's happening, I think now, is that central banks are becoming very much more politicized, which I worry about everywhere. And the outcome and, the, uh, and, and how that is going to pan out over time, particularly at the time there's huge amounts of debt everywhere, is, in my opinion, very uncertain. Of course, before that, things were much more traditional. The central bankers came in, turned the money tap off, and we had a recession and all this sort of thing to cleanse the system out. And then off we went to the races again. And, of course, the biggest cleanser of the system, who had the biggest challenge and managed to ride through it, was, uh, was Paul Volcker, who, in my view, was the greatest central banker of, of the age, really, in terms of he 
he he he created a very un difficult and unpleasant environment for the with the rise of interest rates for a while. But of course, all that he cleansed the system and hey presto, for the next forty years, you know, we 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 benefited with that. Now, of course, we we've we've taken that too far in my view. But he was a man of immense dignity as well, wasn't he? But I think what impressed me enormously was that when uh, Alan Greenspan took over, basically, and that we had quite a turbulent time yeah. during his early years. He was very keen to say, and also with those that followed, particularly when people like Ben Bernanke came up, that he was felt ill-obliged to criticize predecessors. He yeah. said, I've had my run. Yeah. No, it's up to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, no, I agree with that. I think that he is some of his things he brought under the Obama regime. I mean, what he tried to do was to sort of cleanse the system and everything. But I think that one of the problems, the results of that was that, of course, he wanted less sort of punting around, for want of a better word, in the bond markets. But on the other hand, it really created, in my view, quite a drain of liquidity and capital, which the which was withdrawn by the all the banks who were the big players in the market, and uh, they couldn't hold so much uh, inventory and all this sort of thing, which I think is potentially now quite dangerous. Because I think there's a lack of liquidity in the market in relation to the size of the market itself. Jonathan, did do did you like the the I think it was just have to speak as a young journalist then, but is the sort of the Ken and Eddie show? Did you like that sort of um, obvious closeness and, and chat? And it, it was it, it appeared from the outside already already quite informal. I'm sure, it, of course, it wasn't. But at the same yeah. time, it was it was it was good. You felt as though there were two people anyway who knew what they were doing, running things. Did did you? Yes. They did know what they were doing, and they were very very competent. They did run things extremely well. You're absolutely right about that, and uh, and of course uh, the thing would be you know the, the Thatcher revolution with all the privatizations and this sort of thing had made a big change to um, had made a big change to the government finances from the early 80s and the and the and the leftovers of the sort of Labour regime where uh, you know debt and interest rates were were out of control basically. So which which takes me on to the natural question, which is you know when Gordon Brown came in and you alluded to it a few moments ago, but and separated made the Bank of England independent. Did that make a difference? Yes, exactly. That's exactly what he did. Hmm. And, um, uh, and 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 Eddie had, as I said, all the right skill sets to uh, to to uh, maximise the benefits of that for the taxpayer and everybody else. He'd run the foreign exchange, Michael. You see. Uh, as a as a manager years before, so he knew the workings mm. and he knew the mentality of the street. Yeah, as and, well he, as and, he, and he'd run the, and he'd run all the all, he'd run all the debt management out of the Bank of England. He was the, he ran all that. And it, okay, he was the interlocutor so, so, between the Bank mm. of England, uh, uh, sorry, at the market and uh, the Treasury at the Bank of England. He was the interlocutor between them all. The, um, Sort of disregarding the big bump of the the, the stock market crash in, in 1987 and, and sort of moving on to the, the, the banking crisis, that seemed to me to be much, much more serious because that, that more or less touched everybody. What, what did you feel at the time? The two greatest crises that I've, I've experienced in my lifetime when I was working full time in markets were 1972-4, uh, which ended in the, in the Burma oil inflation. crash and everything yep. else. And as you say, the global financial crisis. And you know, Gordon Brown had many faults, but he did actually understand the crisis in 2007, 8, 2007, 9. And he did the right thing by pumping, by pumping money into the system because it was, it was a very, very serious matter. And you know, uh, your point on the Monday was, they knew that unless they did something, 
the Royal Bank of Scotland was going to fall over. There was absolutely no question about that uh, whatsoever. And in 72-4, it's the same thing. The system nearly fell over because of in, a combination of inflation and a lack of cash in the system. And finally, the, they, they released that by allowing more depreciation against tax and various things, which also saved the system then, which, which was also, also sort of, you know, going down, really. I mean, I remember in 74, the macabre sense of humour around Christmas, where there was practically no business. A lot of people were losing their jobs. And a person in my firm came round with, a, with, a, with an envelope for everybody, uh, purportedly, but found it subsequently to be untrue from the senior partner, saying, dear colleague, um, I, thank you very much for all the fine work you've done in 74. But as you know, this is we're in the midst of a very serious financial crisis. And regrettably, the firm cannot pay its normal bonus uh, but on the other hand, we feel we'd like to make a gesture to the staff to thank them for their efforts. And therefore, we can either offer a turkey weighing up to £10 or a partnership. And the chap said to me, you better hurry up. The partnerships are going very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd like to sort of just pursue that a little bit, um, you know, as regards what happened in uh, 72 for. Let's yeah. move on to, to the year before 87, the big sell-off, 86, which was the day, it was the year of Big Bang. Yeah. And I think I'm right in saying that your career started to really blossom then. Uh, you moved away significantly from the guild market and really dominated equities at Barclays to Zoopwed. And I venture to suggest that Barclays and Warburgs were really the only really successful UK participants who really saw the job through. And the rest, the fact that we had 26 market makers in guilds, I think, or something of that order, yeah. was insane when there were only five, I think, in treasuries in yeah. New York. Yeah. Big Bang a success? Well, I think Big Bang itself was a, was a big success, and a lot of people had spent some time preparing for it. So, and you know, you think that the day dawned. I remember, you know, in our firm, like all these other firms, you know, we had all these new computer systems and goodness knows what else, and you just wondered on the day whether they were going to come up and work. Uh, and they did. I mean, pe people, it was a fantastic feat, really, to have left on a Friday, started a new system on a Monday, and it all came up and worked. I mean, it was extraordinary, really. So a lot of people deserve a lot of praise for that, for the, for the, for the, work, for the work they put in. I mean, the guilt market was, was a, a, an example of the ridiculous successes of the time, you know, which was all on it, excesses of pay, excesses yeah. of the amount of money being spent on things and all the rest of it. And the guilt market just epitomized that because there were, there were Zachroyd and ourselves and three or four other smaller jobbers who were doing a, a good job in their own way generally serving the smaller brokers and this sort the of thing sort of or type. Yeah, yeah. And, and smaller ones than that and and um uh, and then all of a sudden uh there weren't going to be two or uh, four smaller ones there's going to be 28 all of whom had far too much money uh tied up in the thing and as i i went to barclays to make a presentation they said well tell us about the guilt mark and i said well look i think on the day uh, as has happened before, ourselves and Ackroyd and Smithers will be on the front row of the grid. But I said, you've got to understand there are now 26 other organizations, all with bags of money, driving enormous cars in a metaphorical sense, and none of them pass their test. So I said, basically speaking, the destruction as they learn how to drive these machines is going to be absolutely ghastly. And so, so it uh, turned out to be, although we, we were very fortunate because uh, we, we managed to make money throughout the whole thing because we'd, we'd have the techniques, we'd learn the lessons. What to do. Yeah. The thing I'd like to say, I would venture to suggest, and this is somebody who looked from the outside looking in, 
that the advent of life, the futures market, really put people like Salomon and Goldman in a driving seat they would never have got without it. Oh, yeah, definitely. Is that right? Definitely. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, the, the futures market, which opened about uh, 1982, didn't it? Yeah. Uh, was 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 a phenomenal success under uh, John Barcher. I mean, it was a it was a completely new concept. Uh, it was a brilliant success, uh, as was the uh, the uh, opening of the stock market, the options market, the stock market. All these things really accelerated the process. No question about that at all. But the market, the the, the market as it was before, could not last the, the system we had before couldn't last because the market was getting too big and if you were sitting in the government's position you could not possibly just rely on two firms to be basically running your debt i mean it was just because the right, debt was too low it was the government had to do something and it was one of the biggest catalysts for the creation of big bank no question about that more so than the the brokerage thing well i think it was that there were both of them but they came together at the time of yeah. convergence you know I mean, clearly there was a feeling that the, the stockbrokers were earning far too much money uh, from fixed commissions, which they were right about, and that, they, that that had to be broken up. So the whole system needed a change. So it was the it was the brokers with the commissions, and in the fixed income market, it was the need from the from the treasury and the bank to see that they needed more outlets and more distribution of their debt. Yeah. Given Jonathan the 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 survival and then the flourishing of the city of London after such a cataclysmic thing as Big Big Bang clearly was, the obvious question is does that expertise, does does that specialness of the city of London, if I can put it like that, bode well for the future? Well it should do, I think. I mean I, I think that the, the, the city's always found new ways to make money, hasn't it? Whether it was what we talked about, the derivatives market, before that it was the Eurobond market, and um, and the other big advantage the city's got, which is always underestimated and let long may it continue, is the, the matter of English law. English common law and the English courts are the only thing that is recognized internationally as a place you are bound to get a fair shake. There are plenty of other countries, including America, but as you know, the judges are pretty politicized there, where you may and most likely will get a fair shake, but you can't be guaranteed that. And on the continent of Europe with completely different legal structure, the Napoleonic Code and everything else, well, that's a different game altogether. So I think that the city still has big advantages to be able to deal with its domestic, domestic markets and be a wholesaler to the world as long as it sets itself up and continues to set itself up in the right structure from a regulatory point of view and all the other points of view. Trust. Tr trust is, you, 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 quoted, you quoted the phrase, didn't you? My word is my bond and all the rest of it. Do yeah. you think that, does, is, is that, is that the key to it as well? Obviously, a very good point about the legal system, but, but trust as well, you know, being able to actually talk to somebody and say, look, this is confidential, old boy, or whatever it may be, you know, or this is how it's going to be. Can, can I just trust you just for the moment whilst we have some discussions about something? That, that's what I feel, looking from the outside, that the city has still. Yes, I think it does, but I think it works a different way now because you've got to be confidential, otherwise you've got to be uh, take some any confidence, then uh, you do so. And there's still a lot of very good relationships in the city, but the other, the other reason is now if you don't do it, you go to prison. So it's, it, it, you know, <laughs> the system's changed a bit in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's absolutely right. Can we just go back a little bit to your career, which I found fascinating? I mean, huge success at Barclays. I mean, as I say, two of the pinnacles together with Swiss Bank, Stroke Warburg, Stroke UBS, yeah. went forward. But events, because of 
equities being sold on at Barclays. Yeah. I mean, you went on to Credit Suisse. Was that a massive cultural change? Did oh, you love massive it? culture. I think just getting back to yeah. the, your point, David, about the Barclays and Warburgs. Warburgs was a terrific firm. I mean... Scully was special, wasn't it? Well, it wasn't much Scully, although he was special. It was much more going back to Sigmund and, and the Seligman. whole basis yeah. of the Seligmans, uh, Sigmund Warburg. Uh, the, they, they really created a really high quality firm with very, very high quality people. But they did have one vulnerability, which they tried to cover by buying, quite sensibly, by trying to buy Ackroyd and Smithers, but it didn't work out in that sense. That particularly Scully and others, they had many, many talents, but they had no understanding of, or grasp of risk and control risk and, and, and trading, particularly in the fixed income area. And that was the vulnerability that ultimately took them out because in the end, they started taking risk on, they employed people who hadn't got the first grasp of risk. And that really was the catalyst, sadly, for taking them out of, of the UK scene. In the Barclays situation, it was different. And I remember um, you know, putting papers out, preparing papers and things, trying to explain to Barclays in, in the mid-90s that we, in an equity sense, were in a very vulnerable position ourselves. And the vulnerability was twofold. One was we didn't have a strong enough investment banking background because of the where we come from. And, and secondly, our broking business was too big to be small and it was too small to be big. And Barclays either had to move forward to sell or to buy. They had to do something because we were just in the middle ground, the killing fields, where there was no chance of survival. And that was, that was where. So we then moved to Credit Suisse uh, because that, that was what was decided. It, for me, it wasn't such a big cultural change because I was old enough uh, and I had some very interesting jobs there, which I really enjoyed. But for a lot of people, it was a huge cultural change. There was no question about that at all. A huge cultural change, yeah. Yeah. And you must be somewhat saddened um, since the banking crisis um, that Credit Suisse has not performed in the manner that you left it. Well, I don't know what I left it like that, but I mean, Credit Suisse has, uh, has been poorly managed, uh, uh, intermittently anyway, for a very, very long time. And, um, you know, in, in the old days of Rudloff and then Alan Wheat, the Swiss allowed all sorts of excesses to take place because they were get, making a lot of money. And there was, uh, uh, and the structure was, was to really, before I arrived, that, you know, they, Credit Suisse in New York would be competing while they're working with Credit Suisse in London and all this. I mean, the whole thing was, was it was, CSFB it was unstable as well. Yeah, it? exactly. Yeah. And the, the whole thing was, 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 was unstable and not properly controlled was the basic problem. And they're still living with that today. You know, you've seen this complete lack of proper risk controls yeah. whether it's with Greensill or this other chap mr wang and yeah. his and his uh, and his fund i mean it's it's terribly sad because it was was and probably said is loaded with very smart very talented very hard-working people and this business of transferring which ubs is doing into focusing on wealth management and staying away from the other peripheral stuff yeah uh, that's probably a pretty sound judgment, isn't it, to do that? Well, I, th I think basically that they see wealth management quite rightly as the golden thing, and they see that they haven't controlled risk very well. And basically what we've really done is, in terms of investment banking, now with the Deutsche Bank's challenges and everything else, uh, and Barclays up to a point, that most of, most of it have given up and, and handed it all to Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, and the Americans. I mean, Barclays are still in there doing quite a good job, 
Deutsche, I'm not quite sure how they're going to end up with it. But right. anyway, you know, it, it is what it is. And and uh, the, the, the way is clear for the Americans. No yeah. question about that at all. Before I hand back to Michael a bit, Mike, do you want to come in? So, yeah, please do. No, no, you, you, you continue. I, I just have some more general questions. Just one, one more general question yeah, to ask. Can you carry on? The, the one I really like to think is like to ask you a little bit about IG, who you were chairman during what I call for the very formative years, and I think did a fantastic job. And I think IG in that field is a beacon because the others haven't really performed. You've got the plus 500s that have done quite well away from these shores. You've got the CMC markets, but IG just seems to have that sort of base for business and their understanding and their control of credit and their understanding of risk. They've done it very well. And their technology going back now 15, 16 years, absolutely unbelievable. Yeah. No, IG was a, was a great experience for me. Um, I was I was very lucky to be made chairman, um, uh, and I got a call actually from a headhunter, uh, which I clear with Credit Suisse before going to see him, saying uh, we're looking for a chairman for IG. And I went to see uh, I went to see first Rob Lucas at CBC, who just bought IG out of the market for 145 million because Stuart Wheeler decided he wanted to get out. And they couldn't place a stock. It was the bottom of the bear but market. He had 80 two, million of it, didn't he? Yeah, and the, you know, and, and it was the bottom of the bear market in 2003. It couldn't have been the worst time to be selling. CBC, smart as paint, stepped in and bought it, and they were looking for a chairman. And um, a week later, much to my surprise, I'd been appointed chairman. But about three months later, I said to Rob Lucas, I said, "Well, look, I'm very happy to be here, but I said I'm rather surprised at the speed of the process." Oh, he said, "John, we'd already seen 15 people." They were all totally capable of becoming chairman, but not one of them had the first grasp of the business. You were the first person who had a grasp of the business and you didn't know how to be chairman, but we felt we could teach you how to do that. <laughs> so anyway, but it was, it, so we went in there and it had some big challenges at the time, but it was surrounded with very bright people at the top. Nat LaRue was the chief executive at the time, very, very able, very smart man. Um, Tim Hawkins was the CFO, very smart man. Peter Hetherington was a COO, very smart man. Andrew Mackay did all the legal stuff. They were very, very smart people. And we were very, very careful how we built our board. You know, we had Alan Budd on the board. I mean, you know, and- Did you know that, Barclays? Yes, I did. I, I rang him up and when, when we decided to go uh, public and I said, look, Alan, would you like mind coming on the board? And he very kindly did. And of course it gave the whole thing a tremendous amount of gravitas because, you know, he knew about the business he'd been looking at the, the, the gambling commission and various things, and he was a very respected person. So we were very lucky. I mean, he added an awful lot of value to the board. So we, 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 we had, we, all the people there were cleverer than I was. And that was what I like. I so. And, um, and they, they, they did a terrific job and uh, they prioritized things properly. And, um, uh, you know, we were, we were always very, very careful to have build excellent relationships with the regulator. Uh, and, and, and to make sure that we ran a proper and clean show. And if we ever had a complaint from a client, uh, we either accepted it immediately and um, paid out what he should be compensated. Basically, it was obviously very small. But if a client sometimes complained um, and he, we thought he was talking nonsense, then uh, we refused to pay him. Well, we saw him in court. Me court and yeah. then it, we never had a court failure. In the, fifth, in the 10 years I was chairman. I mean, we were, because they were so obviously, you know. Up to snuff, yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Michael, come on. I'd like to ask you about Easternization, and I'd like to ask you about China. What on earth do we do about China? What 
can they be brought to talk or do we have to go through years of this megaphone diplomacy, the Huawei business and all the rest of it? Or is, is, is there some sort of common ground, do you think? Because clearly there is a there is a complete gap between what I understand seem, appears to be going on in China at the moment and, and what a capitalist society is all about. Well, I don't know enough about China to be to be honest with you, Michael. I mean, it's 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 just going to be a huge challenge, isn't it? I mean, uh, uh, Xi is uh, uh, on, on, on not literally on the war path, but he's he's um, he's he's basically got a, a vision about China, and now he's obviously a bit concerned that um, there is uh, that uh, the, the the poorer people. Uh, are struggling a bit and there's too much wealth associated with the top people and everything else and is he going to change all that i think investment into china is very difficult to predict on the one hand you've got blackrock and all these people say it's now very very cheap and look at tencent against and tencent and all these ones against the valuations of um, of uh, us tech stocks and they're all very cheap and now's the time to buy the prices have collapsed and then you've got on the other hand people i've got a high regard for like george soros saying don't touch it with a barge pole uh, because, um, you know, things have changed in China and uh, these people um, are changing the, the priorities of, of the government there. I don't know who is right and who is wrong, to be honest with you. Uh, and I think it's going to be a very long drawn out thing. I mean, my greatest fear, uh, my greatest fear, full stop of anything, is an invasion of Taiwan. Uh, because um, if that happens, um, uh, not only in the stock market, are all bets are off for a while, uh, while we see how that pans out. I think, I mean, the thing that I suppose worries me more than anything else is that whenever the regulator in any sign of Chinese business steps in, it has a very dramatic effect on the pricing of equity, doesn't it? I yeah. mean, you know, we've had in the last fortnight uh, some, some suggested interventions when You've seen stocks like Alibaba and Tencent and other things drop by seven, eight yeah. percent, which is very significant. Yeah. Yeah. And that is always going to be like a cumulonimbus cloud, I suppose, yeah. in the next two or three years. Yeah. Yeah. Can we go back nearer home? Because I think we've 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 we're not through the pandemic, but it's better than it was. The stock market's had eighteen tremendous months, and you begin to wonder yeah. about valuations. Yeah. And also, I'd like to ask you about private equity. Because it strikes me that private equity through debt, debt is cheap at the moment than raising capital through equity, which is a little bit more expensive. Um, do you think the government should have more control about what companies we let go west, particularly the defence sector? And do you think that uh, assets in the United Kingdom are going to remain cheap for some time? Well, I can't. I think forecasts in the future is always very difficult. But uh, I dodged that one. I know the, the UK, the UK is by stock by a lot of stock market standards, relatively speaking, cheap. I, I have to say, I, I do believe that the government now should be should have stepped in, in my view, with Cobham. I think with Megit, probably ultra certainly they should be stepping in uh, because these are critical things for our defence industries, and we can't have let them go overseas. And generally, it's not only private equity, but takeovers generally, what people promise, as you saw with Mondelez and Cabris, they promise the earth and they deliver nothing. Yeah. And we have no control over this at all. And we've been had for suckers in some of this uh, over, over a long period of time. So my overall view is we need to be a bit more circumspect 
about private equity taking these things over. Uh, you, you know, because some businesses uh, have basically gone out because they've been too fragile um, uh, to survive a downturn because of too much debt. And uh, you, you look at something which is basically a good business for what I can gather, like the AA, which has come back to the market, but has got too much debt and is always struggling to survive and has no real room to of earnings to really pay off the debt and everything else. So there's some, there's a, there's a few problems there. I, I think private equity, in many senses, does a a, a good job in in um, you know sharpening up companies and this sort of thing. But at the moment, uh, in my view, in certain areas, we 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 need to be thinking about what we we need at home to survive. Your insatiable appetite and your enthusiasm for business knows no bounds. I think it's wonderful, and I salute you. And you're now working very hard with First Avenue, and it's a different type of uh, operation, but it must give you a terrific thrill, doesn't it? Yes, well, I spend some time at First Avenue. I've got a lot of very good partners, and at my age, of course, it's, it's time to be sort of exiting there. But, you know, that's been a fascinating journey of uh, raising money, mainly in our area. We've done a bit of private equity. We, we raise money for alternative assets. Uh, we mainly concentrate on credit um, and also on real assets there. And then I've spent a lot of time uh, in the last three or four years investing and looking at EIS companies. I never go on the board, but I, I see a lot of young people uh, working very hard and trying to create things. And uh, they've been fantastic during a very difficult time, mainly created by COVID, you know, yeah, not absolutely. Uh, very challenging for them. And they've done a terrific job here. So I, I really, you know, in that sense, I'm quite optimistic uh, for the UK when I, when I look at that side. And then on the other hand, I... I get full of despair when I look at some of the ill thought out sort of proposals for, from government and interference from government all the time uh, in an ill thought out way uh, and in a rather chaotic way. So I'm I, in terms of my optimism and my, uh, my negatives is, is very mixed. On the one hand, I'm very, very optimistic because of the energy of youth and this sort of thing. Is going to, and then I, I worry about the sort of endless amounts of government interference in areas where I don't think there should be any government interference at all, really. Michael, bring it us all to an end. We've loved this, haven't we? We have. It's it's been it's been a, a an education, and it's been absolutely fascinating, Jonathan. Enjoyed every minute of it. It's Bless you. Complete pleasure. Thanks very much indeed. Mm -hmm.